Uh, let's let's begin. I'm just going to mute everyone. Okay. Right. Uh, welcome back, Larry. Um, this is the Shir Ilurish Nishmos and Ephraim Shmuel Ben Avram Ariah Cohen Chaya Tovabas Eliezer Mendel Cohen on the Book of Yecheskel last time. Bring you up to date. We got as far as verse 27, chapter 3, verse 27. And uh, last week we discussed the issue of why God changed his mind, why God changed his approach, why originally God wanted Yechezkel to speak to the people. Now he wants him locked up inside his house cozily. Um, God does that sometimes. God has, so to speak, change of plan based on other people's free choices or perceived free choices. And uh, right at the very end of this chapter, uh, we're going to get an introduction to chapter four, um, which gives a, a brief, um, so so to speak, connection between what's just happened and what's going to happen. So um, Yechezko has been told to go into his house, lock himself up inside his house, not speak to anybody. Um, and then God says to him in verse 27, uh, there'll come a time. And when the time is right, I'll come and speak to you and I'll open your mouth. Uh, and then you'll speak to them again. And what you'll say to them is this. This is what God says. And whoever wants to listen will listen. And whoever doesn't want to listen, whoever refuses to listen, they can refuse to listen. Because uh, the Jewish people are a rebellious house. So God essentially tells Yechezkel, listen, you're not going to be in your house forever. Uh, just go there for a short time. We'll see how short or how long uh, in chapter four. Um, so God tells them there's going to come a time and it'll be appropriate again for you to speak to the Jews. Just not now. Um, but uh, what is important about this verse, and as I said, it's a connecting verse. It really connects what's going on now to what's going to be going on in Yechezkel's house um, while he's waiting for the call to go out again. Um, but it's uh, appropriate uh, to be able to read this posse correctly. So Rashi explains exactly how you're supposed to read this posse. You're, you're supposed to read it like this. Ubedabri um, when I speak to you, I'll open your mouth. Uh, that's the first part of the verse. Uh, there'll come a time um, that I'll speak to you sometime in the future. I'll open your mouth. In other words, I'll give you prophecy and you'll speak to them. Um, that's what God said. Um, now, God does not is not telling Yechezkel uh, anything about what he's going to be saying later on. We don't know that. Um, he doesn't say in this verse uh, what message he's going to give to the Jews at a later date. He just tells them, he just tells Yechezkel to sit tight, there'll come a time in the future, and I'll speak to you, and I'll give you a message. Uh, I'm not telling you what it is now. Um, I'll tell you then. Um, and then the second part of the verse is, Hashemaya Yishma Lechdal Yechdal Kibes Mary Hamer. And that's God speaking to Yechezkel. That's not part of the message that he's going to be giving to the Jews. That's a message for Yechezkel. Uh, that when I, in fact, later on, tell you to speak to the Jews, so I'll give you a message, which I'm not going to tell you what it is. And uh, whoever wants to listen to that prophecy will uh, listen. And those that don't want to listen will get the usual uh, reception from the Jews. The Jews 
will pay no attention to it. Uh, some will listen, some will ignore you, but overall, they are a rebellious bunch. So what God is doing here, he's setting the scene for the eventual prophecies that Yechezka will receive in the future. Um, in the meantime, um, we're going to move on to chapters four and five, which involves prophecies to Yechezka that are not to be passed on to the Jews, but rather prophecies involving Yechezka having to perform certain physical actions and motions that, that will affect and influence future events that God's uh, form part of God's agenda. And then in chapter six, uh, after a, a passage of two chapters, God will once again speak to Yechezko, uh, with a prophecy that he has to transmit on a national level. So, uh, we're at the point now where we, um, so, so to speak, transfer into chapter four, which is all about, well, the first part of the chapter certainly is all about Yechezko inside his house and tasks he's got to perform there. Um, so as an introduction, I just want to reiterate something we did earlier in, in the book, um, maybe about six months ago, uh, with a bit more detail here, because uh, it's actually going to be um, very um, relevant to uh, the things that uh, Yechezko is going to be asked to do now. And that is the idea of, of prophets performing physical actions, um, which, uh, again, it's a reminder from something we learned earlier on in the book, um, but it's very important and um, sometimes uh, prophets are asked just to speak. Sometimes prophets are asked to speak and to take some physical action. And there's a reason for it. So uh, those that have learned Derech Hashem with me will know that the Ramchal deals with this in great detail. I'll just give you um, really the very basics of what the Ramchal says about this in Derech Hashem. He says that prophets performing a physical act to accompany prophecy um, because Sometimes a thing in this physical world is not fully real until it is expressed in the physical world itself. Words are not enough. Um, and uh, the analogy I gave, which is when we were at the Hashem, was that uh, if you want to remember to do something, so some of us are getting a little bit older now, some, some of us are getting a little bit forgetful. If you want to remember to <clears throat> do something, so before the days where you could put a reminder on your phone to an alarm on your phone to remind you. So people used to, for example, put a stone in the pocket to remind them to do this particular action. And amazingly, when you put your hand in your pocket and you touch the stone, you get a reminder. You're reminded. And the amazing thing is you can use the same trick with the same stone multiple times for multiple reminders. And it still works. This is a symptom, says the Ramchal, that as long as the reminder is just mental, it's not fully real yet. So that sometimes God wants an expression of prophecy to take place in the physical world, not just through words, but through actions as well. And to take the uh, idea a little deeper, uh, the Maral uh, in his Sefer, the Be'er HaGola, um, Be'er Stein, in the second section, um, give us a, a little more insight into this idea because it's something that we do, as we'll see in a second. Um, not just prophets do it, but, but human beings do it as well. He says, da, uh, rave da, uh, look and see, um, and understand this amazing insight to create a heavenly decree 
or an action and a sign in the physical world, so that good will come to pass and the decree will be fulfilled for the good. Therefore, it is fitting on occasions to create a sign or an emulation or a physical action, as we, we find that the prophets did. An example of this is the issue of emulating, action, eating at the start of the year on Rosh Hashanah, items that have a good sign, something we call simonim, so that the decree will emerge into reality. And the good decree will thereby be fulfilled. Says the Maral, this is not nichush. This is not sorcery. This is not what the Torah commanded you not to do. Lo sanachashu. You shouldn't uh, pay any attention to signs. It is only preparation for the fulfillment of the decree of good. This is what is meant, be- meant by the Gemara uh, in Heroyos on Dafyud Beis, where the Gemara says like this, in the name of Rav, Ama, Rav Ami, if a person wants to know whether he will live out the year, this is, should not be tried at home, by the way. It just uh, We don't do this anymore. Um, but this is from the Gemara. Again, the warning. Do not try this at home. Uh, I don't know if you used to have those television programs like we used to have in England. So before the children's programs came on, the, uh, in, the uh, introducer uh, or the person introducing the show would say, the following program uh, features feats, um, that should not be tried by children at home. <laughs> and uh, so this is the war. I'm just giving you the same warning. Do not, this is something you should not try at home. But uh, this is what, uh, this is what the Gemara says in Arroyos. If a person wants to know whether he will live out the year or not, he should suspend a candle during the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in a room where the wind is not blowing. If it's light, its flame continues, he know that he will live out the rest of the year. Uh, said, do not try that at home. If a person wants to conduct a business transaction and wants to know if the deal will be successful or not, um, he should feed a chicken. Keep feeding the chicken. If it becomes fat and round, he will know that it will be successful. Um, so again, do, don't try this at home. Uh, and based on the, this opinion in the Gemara, the Gemara says in the name of Abaya Omra, Abaya Hashtad the Amrit Simon and Milsahi, now that we know that certain signs are substantive, a man should be accustomed himself uh, to looking at and eating squash, beans, leeks, beets, dates on Rosh Hashanah. And the idea is that by t- taking a physical action, you uh, are bringing into the physical world something that is, so to speak, supernatural and not physical yet. But by grabbing on to the idea of a good decree and making a physical action in the physical world, you're, so to speak, ensuring that that uh, decree will be fulfilled in the physical world. That's the Gemara. Uh, that was brought by the Maharal. Um, the Besht, the Baal Shem Tov. Don't, don't everyone, anyone ever say that I don't quote Hasidim. The Baal Shem Tov quotes a verse in Shira Shirim. The, the Boskin Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs by Shlomo Melech, Ishbati Eschem Benos Yerushalayim. I command you, or I swear that you should do, O daughters of Jerusalem, B'tzvahs Olbayolas Asoda, by the gazelles of the field, Imtoiru, Imtooru, as Ahava Ajatechpot, that you awaken and arouse love while it is felt, while you feel the desire. And the Baal Shem Tov explains this possible. If you've awakened your love for God, 
then put it into an item, put it into a chayfetz. If you love God, if your love of God is only an inner experience, a feeling, that feeling will eventually dissipate. But if you express that love by doing an action in the physical world, that action can never be undone. I suppose the same uh, is true of the love of a man and a woman, a man, a wife uh, for a husband, a husband for a wife. You have ethereal, uh, you know, love that is uh, um, there in the ether. Um, but uh, by doing it, certainly a wife understands it. So when a husband does a physical action, however unusual that might be, buys her a nice uh, eternity ring or something. So that's forever. That's an expression that uh, will last forever. Uh, similarly, uh, this is halachal amaisa, by the way. When you get up in the morning, uh, you're supposed to make birkas hatorah before learning. You know, These are brachas that we make before learning in the morning. You're not allowed to learn uh, before you make those brachas. But many poskim, including poskim of our day, hold that if you're only going to think about Torah or go over a piece of Gemara in your mind, you don't have to make the bracha. But if you do a physical action, you speak the words of the Torah or you teach or you write Torah, then you have to make the bracha because then it's real. Then you've brought something that is, so to speak, spiritual into the physical world. So with all that in mind, here in chapter four, which we're going to start now, Gehezkel, just to bring us all up to date, is cooped up in his house. Uh, he's incommunicado. He's, no one's allowed to approach him. He's not allowed to approach anybody else. He's just stuck there. Um, now, just a, a, a warning that to those who have got an aversion to mathematics, there's a bit of mathematics in this uh, chapter, which we'll come to. Um, and uh, when we do, so those that uh, have got a, a good feeling for mathematics can pay close attention, make sure I've not got it wrong. And those that, uh, you know, don't like mathematics, so you can, you know, drift off for, for five minutes while I go through the mathematics. But in any case, let's start with verse one, chapter four, verse one. This is what uh, God is uh, telling Yechezkel. This is for his ears only, inside his house, locked up, incommunicado. Verse 1. Now, son of man, take for yourself a levena, which is like a brick, and place it before you, and engrave on the brick, the city of Yerushalayim. Very straightforward. It's uh, the type of project, uh, like the type of project that a 12-year-old schoolboy or schoolgirl will get excited about. But uh, it's a little bit strange uh, that the great Yechezkel, the great prophet Yechezkel, um, you know, this, this would be the type of thing Yechezkel would want to be doing in his house um, while he's under house arrest. In any event, God tells Yechezkel to carve out Yerushalayim on a levena, a very strange word. What is a levena? So Rashi gives you, uh, for those who don't speak French, <laughs> uh, not much of a clue. He says it's Tui, uh, Belaz, Vyesh Mahem Shehem Gadolos. He says Tui like a tile. That's in modern French. A Tui is a tile. Um, so is it a tile? 
other commentators, Radaka, Barbanel, um, they say it's a building brick. And uh, the Barbanel says, V'yotu nochomach shekosav aradach, she ma'av halabedim shebonim ahem ha'orim. God's instructing to take him a brick, a brick like the bricks they used to build buildings in a city. These bricks are, are uh, they're, they're heavy, but they're, they're quite soft. You take a, a building brick and you can, it's easy to, um, to uh, engrave on it. Uh, it's easy to engrave on it. Much more than stone, stone that comes out of a quarry, which is very hard. Uh, says that's the way uh, the Targum Yonason understands it. It's a, a, a building brick um, that's easily, it's very sturdy in terms of building. But having said that, you can take a carving knife or you can take a sculpting knife and it's easy to sculpt on. But when God's instructing Yechezkel to carve out not only the outline of the city, but also its walls and uh, the settlement, as it looks when it's occupied by its inhabitants. Um, so, very interesting uh, project he's got. He's been uh, cooped up in his house, and uh, God gives him something to do, right? Gives him uh, a project uh, to carve out Yushalayim with all the inhabitants and all the buildings. What's the purpose of it? So the Malman gives us an insight, um, which is just a basic insight. We'll get more details of this idea later on, exactly what it means. But Rash, uh, the Malman says like this, um, What's going on here is Yechezkel, imagine this, Yechezkel is imitating God. God created the world out of nothing, or he created a, a uh, something and expanded its potential into the universe. And Yechezkel is, 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 so to speak, the God in this imagery. He's taking something that's got no organic form, no, no form at all, and he's supposed to transform it into something real, into a city, a brick into a city. In in a similar way that God, so to speak, transforms nothing into a universe. So he says again, Um, specifically to teach Yechezkel that Yushalayim does not have any existence other than the providence of God and God's will. Without God's providence, the air of Yushalayim is just raw stone without any form. Just like the universe before God created the universe was Tohu uh, without any form at all. By giving Yechezkel this task, it intimates this reality. The reality is that the Yerushalayim only exists, just like the carved Yerushalayim only exists through the carving of Yechezkel, the real, the real Yerushalayim only exists by the providence of God. So that the name of God is uh, in front of him, so that he understands 
that Yerushalayim, the city that's going to be destroyed, is only there, but because of the grace of God, um, because the God, God's providence is, providence is on Yerushalayim. That's why the city exists. And so that's why Yechezkel is imitating with his own carved model, Ir Ninvis Altila, how God carved out a habitable city from rubble. Ir Moshav Beliosa Yushalayim Kiryas Melachro. In the same way that Yechezkel is carving out the city of Yushalayim in a model form, and that's how it becomes real. That's the way that God, so to speak, carved out Yerushalayim to be his city, Kiryas Melech Rob, the city of the great king, which is a posit from Tehillim, chapter 48, verse 3, where Yerushalayim is called Kiryas Melech Rob, the city of the great king. Without the will and the, the rot zone, the will and the providence of God, Yerushalayim would not exist. And that is, says the Malvin, that's the superficial, it's more than superficial, but that is the first part of the message that, um, that God is trying to pass on to Yechezkel by telling him to, um, build this model of Yushalayim from a piece of brick, which, uh, it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. Um, we're going to look uh, at another deeper reason for using a brick to depict Yerushalayim uh, later on in, in verse 3. But uh, that that essentially uh, is the opinion of the Malvin, that, um, so to speak, uh, the, the first message to Yechezkel is, uh, yes, Yerushalayim is going to be destroyed. And it's going to be destroyed because, so to speak, God wills it. God's providence has left the city. If God's providence has left, has left the city, then it actually no longer exists. Yerushalayim, as we know it, doesn't, doesn't exist. So um, he's getting him to carve this city as a representation that uh, just like he can carve the city, and it's a real, so to speak, model, when God does it, so it's not just a real model, it's, uh, it's a city, it's a city of the great king, God, and it's got buildings and it's got people and it's got uh, everything else that um, Yerushalayim contains, including a base of Migros. Now, in verse 2, we're going to run through this a little bit quickly, and then we're going to stop and examine exactly what's going on here. But as I said, that, that is, uh, I'm not saying superficial, but it's uh, an introduction to what's going on here. Now, some more instructions regarding what else Yechezkel has to add to the model that he's been asked to carve out. But Nosata Olehom and you shall put in in your uh, carving, in your model, Metzor, the people are laying siege to it. Uvonisa Oleha Daik. And build around it uh, a Daik. So it's an interesting word, a Daik. It's like a, what they used to, um, I don't know how you got it translated. Um, it's like a catapult. So when, when uh, they used to surround the city <coughs> in ancient days and they used to besiege the city, they used to fire a catapult, stones and whatever, fire um, into the city from the catapult. So he says, when you should uh, express this this model of the city which aligned with a siege around it, when he saw a dike and put around it uh, catapults, or shafakta 
uh, uh, solar law and um, a solar lot. We'll see in a second. It's a mound that they used to build outside a walled city that uh, they were besieging. And there should be uh, uh, camps, military camps around it. And you should have guards or um, Korim could be villages or army villages or guards, whatever it is around it. So just the first thing that uh, jumps out to you, this posuk, is the technical issues about the model Yecheskel, the things that Yecheskel has to add to the carving of Yishalayim. Again, a Matsar is uh, an army, uh, an enemy army surrounding the city. Uh, a Dayik or Dayik is a stone-throwing catapult, um, which they hurled into the city. That's Rashi's opinion. Uh, others say it's a, a thin wall built around the city by the invaders, pre- preventing the inhabitants of the city from escaping the city, from escaping the siege. And that's the opinion of the Malbim, opinion of others. That's a Dayek. Um, I always, uh, when I read this, I, I always think of the, um, the Dutch word, a dike, which is also used to, uh, prevent the water from, you know, to prevent the water from coming into a city. So this is, the, this is the Malbim's translation of Dayek is, uh, like a, a um, a, a, a metal fence that prevents the, the inhabitants from escaping the siege. In the same way that a dike, in, I don't know if it's a Dutch word, or maybe it comes from this word, I don't know, but uh, a dike prevents the water from getting out and flooding the uh, Dutch countryside. Um, who's wrote this? Hold on. Tuia, Tuia, oh, is the name of the no, Royal Palace Central. Paris that was eventually burned down. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that, Harvey. Cheers, man, for the, uh, history lesson, uh, on the word tui. Um, uh, okay, just back to the postic. A solar law. What is a solar law? A solar law is a, a, a mound. The, what they would do, they used to pour and press earth, uh, which is the language of solar law and beat it down with sticks, making a high mound on which to stand and they could look into the city and shoot arrows and fireballs, etc., into the city. And then uh, Yechezkel is told to build Machanos, that there should be a military encampment around the city, uh, a similar or Korim, and uh, either villages around it, or uh, the Targum uh, translates it as Ephroron, Ephronon or Ephroron, uh, villages that the armies make, like encampments, um, whether, you know, when an army is besieging a city, so they have a tent city around the city, uh, on all sides that no, no one can come and go. Another explanation is Corim are officers appointed over the army and each one is responsible for, for guarding a different entrance or exit to the city to, again, to prevent people from leaving. Um, Rashi, uh, the Malbim says that, that Corim are iron rams. That are used to smash into, that they used to, uh, use to smash into the city and breach, uh, breach the walls of the city. And, uh, the purpose of all these additions to the model is this. And this is just a, the imagery now becomes the city of Yushalayim, which is God's city. Now is surrounded, it's surrounded by the Babylonians. We are Simon Matsara Yushalayim. And that Yecheskel should get, should create the image and he should see, should see something that is going to happen in the future. 
that they will be surrounding you, Shalayim, the Yivnu Olao Dayik, and they'll be building catapults, Bishpachol Olao Solala, and they'll be building mounds with which to climb up and see into the city and fire arrows there. And then there should be military encampments around the city. And, uh, and metal iron rams, uh, ram, rams, but, uh, not rams, the animal, but things that you can ram with, ram the wall with in order to bring the wall down, the lichvoshesoir, and to uh, conquer the city. So that's the technical details. Now, finally, verse three, and this is where the whole thing becomes very strange. And now, this is, that's the scene. The scene is Yerushalayim, with no God in it, um, surrounded by a Babylonian army about to invade, and you know, they're in the process of besieging the city, and about to destroy the city, about to take the city. Now, you take an iron skillet, or a pan, a machabas, any other translation of the word machabas, uh, I think it's an iron skillet or an iron pan, some type of cooking utensil. Um, if anyone's got a different uh, translation, put it in the chat. Um, but he's commanded, take you, you, Yecheskel, take an iron pan. Um, and use it as an iron wall between between you and the city. Uh, and direct your face towards it. Uh, um, and, uh, and you shall, uh, so to speak, be seated, uh, uh, and will, uh, the city will be under siege. But and you will see the siege of it, or you will besiege it yourself. And this is a sign to the house of Israel. Now, what on earth is this all about? He's got to take an iron bar or an iron pan and use it as a wall between him and the city. And then he's got to direct his face towards the city uh, and the city will be under siege. And um, But uh, if he's got an iron bar, so, so to speak, an iron bar between him and the city, he won't be able to see the city. It'll like be, be between him and and the city, as the, the city is besieged, as the city is under threat, as the city gets conquered. So what's this all about? So there's a lot to say here. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Uh, the first thing God tells them to do is, um, take, take yourself uh, an iron skillet, an iron pan. Uh, and place it between you and the city. Um, so there's going to be a model depicting the upcoming destruction of Yushalayim. And Yechezkel is called, told to carve the city from a brick and add the invading army with the, all the siege accoutrements. Um, when it came to the, to, to the city of Yushalayim, God instructs Yechezkel to use a brick uh, to carve the city. But when it came to the invading army with all its siege accoutrements in verse 2, Yechezkel is given a free hand to use whatever instrument or whatever materials he wants when building the model. If you notice again, in verse 1, we're told that uh, he has to build the situation line from the brick. 
uh, in verse two, he's told to build uh, or to attach to the model um, uh, an army that's surrounding and besieging the city. But he's given no instructions how he's supposed to do that. He could, like, he's got a free hand to do that, whatever he wants to do. But back again here in verse three, God instructs Yechezkel to construct a wall between himself and the city. But like in verse one, God demands a specific material be used in the construction of that wall. And that is iron, barzel. So there are two questions um, that really jump out at you, or they jump out at me uh, in this this verse. Question number one is, why do you shall I have to be constructed by means of a carved brick? Why, why, why specifically a carved brick? Apart from the fact that it was pointed out in the first verse that uh, it's easier to carve from brick than it is from stone. Um, and question number two, why was there a need for a barrier, specifically an iron barrier between Yecheskel and the city, as he described in this verse, that he's got, a, he's got to take a, a machabas barzel, an iron skillet or an iron pan, and place it between himself, him that's building or constructing this model, and the city. What's that all about? So the first question we'll deal with first, why did Yushalayim have to be constructed by means of a carved brick? Um, the first, the easy answer to that question is the Malbim's answer in verse one, that the brick alludes to the fact that Yerushalayim exists only by the providence of God, without which it would be merely a pile of bricks, be a pile of rubble. And what Yechezkel is doing is imitating by his own carved model in brick, how God carved out the holy habitable city of Yerushalayim from rubble, from nothing, from nothingness. That became Yerushalayim, a Kiryas Melachro, a, a city fit for a great king. So that was the, the answer we, I said it, it's partially superficial, as we'll see now. Um, and uh, we're going to take a, a, a bit of a deeper dive into a much deeper answer here. Uh, why brick? Why, why carved brick? So uh, the second answer is, again, it's a lot deeper. Uh, anybody know the first mention of a brick in Tanakh? Open question open to, um, like we did a program in England, open to, uh, father and youngest son only. Remember that program, uh, Harvey? Don't know what it was called, but these family, family, uh, quiz. You used to have a mother, a father and two kids. And certain questions were open only to the mother or open only to the mother and the daughter or the father and the youngest son or the two children, whatever it is. This question is mm-hmm. open to everybody. Where's the first mention of bricks in the Torah? I've told what? you now it's the Torah now, not the Tanakh. Bavel? Who said Bavel? Who said Bavel? We ate it. Okay. There we are. So we're all, we're all on, uh, we're all tuned in. So the first mention of bricks in the Torah is is in Bereshis, chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. This is after the flood and all the people, and uh, they're going to bring build a um, uh, a, uh, a migdal. They're going to build a, a tower. Everybody said to each other, have on nilban or levenim. Let's uh, make bricks. And fire them through thoroughly. And let us make bricks uh, for stones, like instead of stones. And the clay 
was for them, they use clay to like be the mortar, to be the cement or whatever it is. And by uh, Omru, and they said, this is uh, the next posuk, Hova Nivna Lonu Ir, Umigdal, let us build a city and a tower, Barosha Bashamayim, and it's uh, the head of the tower, the top of the tower will be in heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be scattered uh, upon the face of the earth. Lest God scatters us across the face of the earth. So the first mention of bricks in Tanakh concerns the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon. And, and where are the Jews about to go into exile? The Jews are about to go into exile in Babylon, Babel. So let's examine this random connection in a bit of depth. Why did the construction of the Tower of Babel need to be made of bricks? Why didn't they use just the local quarry, the quarry stone? And uh, it's quite clear from the possible that they had quarry stone because they said, let's make bricks and use the bricks instead of stone. So uh, why, did, why, did, why did they build the uh, Tower of Babel out of bricks all of a sudden? Like, who gave them the idea of bricks? So Rashi in Beratius, um explains, um, because in Babylonia, there weren't any stones. Babylonia at that time, there were no quarries. Um, it was just a swampy valley. So the builders of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon, had to manufacture bricks. They had to use their, uh, their innovative human innovative skills. As Beratius says, they used they use bricks instead of stone because they had no stone. Um, now, they could have waited and sent out for stone. Remember, the world was, uh, you know, they weren't in any rush, but they didn't. They used their own ingenuity. And the idea of making bricks for construction seems obvious to us um, because we've been doing it for thousands of years. But for the builders of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babylon, Migdal Bobel, this was a totally innovative move. It was like, you know, the, the wheel. They created the wheel or WhatsApp or, you know, stuff like that or equality, right? Something that's uh, one of these wonderful creations that human beings have from time to time. Great ideas. It never been done before. So bricks are a human substitute for stone because God provided, so to speak, in this world, a standard means by which we can construct buildings, which is stone. The human substitute for stone is bricks. The Tower of Babel, Tower of Bab- Bobel, Migdal Bobel, was constructed for one person, one purpose only. It was an attempt by the combined, combined peoples of the world to unite and confront God. And they wanted to express their independence from God, as they said in verse 4. They, they, uh, that's exactly what they said. Um, one second. Lost my place here. Um, yeah, that's what they said in verse four. Let us build a city and a tower. So we can get up to the heavens. And we'll make a name for ourselves, like uh, to show our independence from God. Um, so, hello? Oh, need to mute people, sorry. So what's going on here? It's not a coincidence uh, that they use brick and not stone to construct the tower. Their subliminal message was true. 
God has provided, provided the optimum materials for construction, which is stone. But we want to show our own independence from God by using our own ingenuity and constructing this tower, this edifice, this city from an innovative, novel, human-inspired method, which is brick, rather than with what God has provided us with. Because we want to show our liberation from God's influence and God's control over us. We don't need God's material. We'll use our own invention, Masa Biodenu, to build our tower. Brick represents human endeavor, human ingenuity, human discovery. Um, and um, that is the idea of the brick here, as we'll see how it fits in a second. Now, this basic Jewish philosophy is that every natural element that God has provided for humanity in the physical world is merely a tool to be used in the service of God. The whole creation, the whole universe in macro terms and the human being in micro, micro terms is a fusion of the physical and the spiritual. The job of the Jew is to take the physical and elevate it so that it has a spiritual dimension. So that, uh, for example, when we make Kiddush on Friday night, we're doing a biblical mitzvah. Uh, when we say, uh, uh, people make a mistake, they think that Kiddush on Shabbos is the big Kiddush. It isn't. Kiddush on Shabbos has got no source. For Shomer Vinei Yisrael on Shabbos has got no source at all. But when you make Kiddush on Friday night, so that's a biblical, uh, it's actually the only positive commandment that you do the whole of Shabbos. It's a biblical mitzvah. And we use wine. So... Let's reflect for a second. Where did the wine come from? The wine came from a vineyard where trained vintners cultivated the grapes and produced the wine. The wine was put into metal vats, manufactured by expert craftsmen. Um, then there's the glass that is manufactured to hold the wine. The machine that produced the seals and corks for the wine uh, are also highly mechanized and computer controlled. Uh, there are trucks involved in the transportation of the wine from one destination to another. And uh, planes in our day transport cargo from one, one uh, destination to another. The government create the environment where trade is possible. Uh, and there's health and safety precautions to protect employees of the vineyard and the consumers of the wine, uh, the ultimate consumer. All this is a huge network, network of interlocking causes and effects leading up to one bracha on Friday night to fulfill a biblical mitzvah and create the spiritual end game to a physical process. Like all of this, from the time that the, the, the vineyard is planted, that is, and everything that takes place between then and the time that you make a bracha on Friday night, a year later, on the on the wine that is a product of that planted vineyard and all the mechanization and all the human involvement and all the processes and all the uh, health and safety precautions that have taken place in the transportation, everything, all that physical action has led up to one purpose only, so that a Jew can make a bracha and, and fulfill a biblical mitzvah on a Friday night. What about the becha? <laughs> what about the bracha you're drinking it from? You're drinking the wine from a becha, a silver brecha. And um, what about the process that went into the manufacture and transport it to the time and place where this biblical mitzvah is being performed? You think about the mining of the silver and uh, the beating of the silver and the um, 
and uh, the purification of the silver. And uh, then it's sent to a manufacturer and your manufacturer beats it and, uh, and creates an image and, uh, from a drawing and then, you know, produces a, a better. So what we're left with is an ever-expanding network of interactive uh, interactions spreading out backwards from your station on Friday night, your table, where you're about to make Kiddish, going all the way back and taking in multitudes of other complex interactions. Every one of these interactions are contributory factors in the completion of one biblical mitzvah of Kiddish. And every one of these interactions has a perfection or a spiritual dimension of purpose attached to it, whether it be organic or inorganic raw materials, or whether it be people. They're all cogs in a process that allows for a biblical mitzvah to be performed. And they are all, uh, so to speak, gaining some type of uh, foothold or some type of um, making some type of contribution to this mitzvah that you are making over a becher of wine on a Friday night. Now imagine the ancient world where wine was transported by ship. How did the sailors navigate the oceans so a Jew in Italy could make Kiddush on wine produced in the land of Israel? The navigation was done by the stars. Now, even the stars have played a part in the biblical mitzvah and achieved, achieved a measure of spiritual elevation. They're part of the mitzvah because they've guided the ship that's brought the wine so that you can make Kiddush on Friday night by contributing to a particular Jew performing the biblical mitzvah making Kiddush on a Friday night. So God, as the creator, has set up these mechanisms by which all these interactions should take place and, the, and maximize the potential of every item in the physical physical world, the physical universe, to be a catalyst of elevation from the merely physical into something spiritual. Everything that God created plays a part in converting something that is just basically transitory into something that is eternal, a mitzvah. This is one of the reasons why we make brachas before we eat everything. Uh, why we make a brachal when witnessing all manner of natural phenomena, seas, thunder, lightning, rainbows, etc. The reason why we do it is because they are all cogs. They are all essential pieces in this process. The process by which the physical world is used is a tool and is a contributing factor to the elevation of what would normally, under normal circumstances, just be a merely transitory um, random action into something that is netzachi, that is eternal, which is a mitzvah. Um, now, the non-Jewish world has trouble with this uniquely Jewish concept that a physical item is only a means to a spiritual goal. Um, after all, the ultimate expression of the Christian belief system is to in- uh, withdraw entirely from the physical world. If you want to be a really from Christian, so you become a hermit, you become a monk, you become a nun, you retire from the physical world, you fast constantly and eat minimally to abstain from sexual uh, intercourse, to never get married, to devote oneself only to spiritual pursuits and prayer. Our Kohen Godel, on the other hand, has to be accessible to the people. He has to be married. 
He has to partake of the best food. He has to be financially independent. The coin goddle is not allowed to be withdrawn from the physical world. Um, and uh, the Buddhists too uh, have the same approach as the Christians. Meditation to achieve enlightenment. And this is the complete opposite of Jewish philosophy. Um, indeed, uh, if you look at the secular, academic, scientific world of the previous 10 centuries, they believe that there was stuff in the universe that served no purpose, was redundant. But uh, if you look at current scientific uh, uh, studies, um, that this previous held belief that uh, of what they used to call uh, in my uh, early days, well, I studied this, a partially redundant universe. In other words, there's things in the universe that, that, that don't mean anything. They're just uh, like uh, they used to say about the uh, appendix, that it serves no purpose. Well, I think they've discovered that it does have a purpose now. I think it has a purpose in the, they've discovered that it uh, plays a part in a person's, um, um, what purpose does it play? It plays a part in a person's ability to uh, fight, off il- fight off illness. In the, uh, what's it called? Um, the, the ability of a human body to fight off uh, disease. I just can't remember the uh, expression. No immunity. Immunity. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, a man's immune system uh, plays a, a part in a person's immune system. But they used to say that the uh, that the appendix was uh, irrelevant. And that's what they used to say about the universe. It was a partially, that's, that was the phrase, a partially redundant universe, um, and uh, which is proven to be both facile and arrogant. The more science develops, the more scientists realize how things are connected and interconnected and how there is almost an infinite chain of reliance starting from the inner animate, extending to uh, the static organic, then on to the animal kingdom, and then finally to man. Um, They've only just started to scrape the surface of this complex chain. Uh, it's a chain they now admit exists, but which crucially they adamantly deny has any spiritual element to it. A brick is the result of human ingenuity. So that when non-Jews use bricks, they use it to express their control over their physical environment. The architects of the Tower of Babel, of Babylon, the Migdal Bovel, took that concept one stage further. They constructed bricks in order to show their independence and rebellion against God. By saying that our ingenuity, this is what they said, our ingenuity, our control, our innovation, and our um, our ability to control the physical environment can not only match God, but can challenge God. For a Jew, this is a complete anathema. The idea of constructing Yushalayim using a brick is the quintessential expression of Jewish philosophy, taking something as commonplace, man-made, as bricks, and converting them from mundane physical objects into the ultimate spiritual environment, the ultimate spiritual reality, a holy city containing the Beit HaMikdash and containing God. Yushalayim and the Beit HaMikdash are the ultimate links between the physical and the spiritual world. This is something that the brick represents. The taking of a man-made physical item and transforming it not into something to challenge God with, that we're greater than God, we're greater than the creator, there is no creator, this is all random, 
and we can do it because we're great and we're clever and we can build and we can innovate and we can build computers. That's not the idea of a brick. That's not why God gave people the ability to be innovative and have been up and build on ideas. The idea is that God gave human beings that ability to elevate the innovative mind into using that innovation, not to show how arrogant we are, not to show how wonderful we are, not to show Kokiva Otsem Yogi, not to show how wonderful we are and we're independent to God and we can do it all ourselves. The rationale is to thank God. The rationale here for Yechezkel's task of building the city using a brick is a reminder to everybody, to all Jews in all generations, that this whole physical environment, this whole physical realm that we occupy and all the tools that it contains and all human ingenuity that we can muster, that we can think of, that we can create, that we can devise, that we can improve, the physical world should have one focus only, and that is the service of God. And we achieve this by elevating something physical, however mundane, like a brick, into a holy task that has spiritual and eternal repercussions, which is the building of a city where God can live. So this is, this is from a Jewish perspective, the the challenge, the challenge, the difference between the Jewish perspective of the physical world and the ability of the human being to innovate. The, the, the originators of the Tower of Babel thought their ability of innovation, of their abilities to innovate and create and discover, made them equal to God. They didn't need God because they're innovative. They can do it themselves and eventually they'll reach a level of um, capability, a level of technology where they don't need God at all. They'll build a tower and they'll confront God and that'll be the end of it. That is the complete opposite of the reason why God gave human ingenuity to human beings. God gave human ingenuity to human beings so that they could use it in his service, so that they could elevate that which is merely physical and elevated into a state where it has spiritual dimensions, just like we discovered when we discussed how you get to make Kiddush on a becher of wine on Friday night. All the supposedly random, just minor physical interactions that take place in the production of that wine and that becher, but it all leads up to one spiritual moment. And that is the Jewish way of looking at the world, as opposed to the secular way of looking at the world. The secular way of looking at the world is the more you innovate, the greater you are, a greater your independence is away from anything to do with spirituality. The more technologically gifted we become, the, the more powerful our computers, the idea of uh, a creator, the idea of relying on a supernal being becomes less and less crucial. The, uh, the Jewish approach is the exact opposite. Yeah, questions. Uh, anyone had a question here? Shona, does it take longer to make a brick than to quarry stone? If we believe God's God rules even the free 
even our free God. God rules our free will very rarely. I don't want that to be something that we, we get hung up on from last week. God interferes with, with people's free will very rarely, almost never. Um, if we believe God rules even our free will, and we'll take a, maybe it will to take longer to build uh, the tower and give the people time to change their minds about building a tower. Uh, I know it's an interesting point. I don't know. But there was a determination there to take bricks and, and build a tower. Um, and that's, that's something that's, um, that is something here that it's a deep, a, a deep idea of why God chose the brick. Because the brick is an expression of, of human beings' innovation rather than the raw material that God provided. That human beings have got the ability and have shown the ability to innovate and uh, become technologic, seemingly technologically independent. And from time to time, God, of course, has got to show us that that, that actually is not true at all. As the last two years of the, the pandemic has clearly demonstrated, um, you know, God's, so to speak, you know, giving us pause for thought, so to speak. You think you, you've conquered the world. You think you've conquered disease. You think you've done, done this. You've done that. You've been to the moon, supposedly. And you've done all this, that, and the other, and uh, you're all superstars. Well, maybe it's not so uh, straightforward. Um, so that is a, a, a bit of a deeper understanding of exactly why God chose a brick. Um, the next question we have to deal with, which will be uh, the centerpiece next week, is question two. The, the, the Pasuk says that uh, as well as building the city out of brick, here in verse three, uh, God tells him, he, uh, he has to take a iron skillet, an iron pan. And, uh, and use it as a barrier between Yechezkel. Yechezkel should take it and use it a, to be a barrier between him and the city. Um, why was there a need for a barrier? Uh, he's making a, a model of the city of Yerushalayim. And, uh, you know, probably wasn't done to scale. There's no indication that Yechezka was an architect. So he's building a, you know, he's making a rough model. What's he need a barrier for? What's the idea of it? And why is it iron? And why is it, why is it a skillet? Why don't you just say, you know, just, and take another brick and uh, put a brick between you and the wall and that will be a barrier. So there are various answers to this question. And again, the answer to this question goes even deeper than the answer to the previous one. The answer to the previous one is about the brick. Uh, why exactly uh, God wanted the Yusha line to be built out of a brick. Um, but the answer to this question, this iron skillet business, takes us very deep into uh, Jewish philosophy and also into the realms of um, the Zohar as well, which I'll try to explain. Some of it I understand. Some of it obviously is beyond me. Um, but essentially there are, I don't know, two or three answers to this question. We'll see how many we can get through next week. Um, but it's, um, it's a, a, a very puzzling, uh, project that God has given to Yechezkel here, especially this bit about building the city with a, 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 an army surrounding it that we understand, right? We can understand, we understand now why it's made of brick. And we can understand why it's got a besieging army. It's there to represent a picture to Yechezkel 
of Yerushalayim under siege from the Babylonians, something that's going to take place over the next few years and uh, will result in the destruction of the base of Migdosh. But why on earth does Yechezkel need to take an iron pan and put it between himself and the model that he has just created? So that uh, is something that we will deal with in Mitzvah next week. Um, in the meantime, before we finish, uh, if there's any questions, now's the time. Harry, I have something that I'm curious about. Yeah. Um, if, with reference to brick and the Tower of Babel, it was at the time of the dispersion, according to the Ramchal, I think I read in, uh, we read together in Derech Hashem, that, um, that God chose, that was the final choosing of Avraham to do the tikkun, let's say, of the world. He and his, and his family, his descendants were the chosen people from that time. And could this possibly be a reminder that with all the, the things, the terrible things that are going to happen, um, that choice is never going to change. Never thought about it that way. Uh, interesting. Uh, let me think about that. It's a very interesting point. I never, never, uh, I never thought about it that way. Uh, interesting, interesting. You didn't write, we didn't, we didn't discuss that, uh, in the Derek Hashem, because uh, the, the Derek, the Ramchal mentions that in Das Tabunos, in the knowing heart, not in the Derek Hashem. Maybe I mentioned that Derek Hashem shit, but let, let me, let me think about that. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting observation. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Anyone else? Very good point, Joan. I'll, I'll think about it. I know Larry Lowenthal has got like 136 questions from the last four cheering, right? And uh, eventually they'll get answered. But uh, it seems to me that I'm glad he wasn't here the last few weeks because he had some pretty sharp questions. But uh, in the meantime, are there any more questions on, on this issue that we dealt with today, this idea of the brick? It's, uh, it's a very powerful and deep idea uh, of the idea that human ingenuity, the Jewish approach to human ingenuity is only for to use that ingenuity, that innovative quality that human beings have, is to elevate the world from a merely physical place into a more spiritual place. That is the essence of what, what we're here for. Um, and that's represented by a brick. That's human innovation. Um, yeah. Is, is there any connection between the bricks that uh, he's talking about here and the bricks that we had to use in, in the train? Uh, not as far as I know. I've not seen any of the... Um, I've not seen any of the commentators make a, a, a reference to um, uh, the bricks in Mitzrayim, except the Abarbanel, because the Abarbanel, uh, eventually we'll get to the Abarbanel, who, not surprisingly, disagrees with everybody's opinion on this chapter. Anyone that's learned uh, Tanakh with me before for some time knows that the Abarbanel doesn't care what anybody thinks, and... Um, he, he takes his own uh, view and he'll have a completely different opinion about uh, what this chapter is all about. And yes, he, he figures it's, it's, it's all about Egypt and uh, the, we haven't come to the numbers yet with the number crunching. We'll come to the number crunching shortly. Um, but yes, the Abarbanel thinks this chapter is not talking about Babylonia attacking Yerushalayim. It's talking about Egypt and uh, the Jews coming out of Egypt. And a reminder to Cheskel about the Exodus. But he's the only one that thinks like that. But again, that won't stop the Abarbanel 
uh, that's the way he is. Um, he doesn't care what anybody says. Um, so we'll come to that eventually. But uh, that's that's the answer to the first question. Um, and again, next week, we're really going to get uh, involved in this issue. Uh, we're going to get involved in Kabbalistic uh, ideas and uh, to understand exactly exactly what this iron pan is all about, especially the word barzel. Why the word barzel? Now, we know the word barzel very interestingly because we use it. We use it to describe our defensive system, right? Um, the iron dough, we call it the iron dough, which is a protective thing. This this iron pan that Yecheskel is using, this barzel, machabas barzel, is not a, a protection. It's almost a, a barrier. Um, not a protective barrier, but it seems to be a barrier um, between the city and any type of protection from above, as we'll discuss next week. If Noah's gum has got any more questions. It's, all, uh, it's also used to describe a large Portuguese former colony in South America. Correct, called Brazil. Yeah. Okay. If there's no more questions, we'll pick up, we'll pick up the story in, I think Warren's still in verse three. Yeah, we're still in verse three. We'll pick up the story and please God next week. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening and, uh, we'll see you next week. Please God. Call up to everybody. Bye all. Bye bye all.